Welcome back, y'all, to episode 125 of the Zachary Wingate podcast, where we go 365 days bringing you a podcast every single day. Nothing is off the table. The intention of this podcast is to master the short form podcast by bringing you information as well as informing within a 15 to 20 minute time period. So sit back, relax and listen and enjoy the show. Okay, so I've been spending a lot of time around my family, and it's always funny, you know, I'm the youngest of nine, um, and also the youngest of both my dad and three kids, my mom and three kids, they got married to three kids, so big family, um, I've been hanging out with my mom's, I've been hanging out with my brothers since been home, and it's always funny what you talk about, and I keep getting in a argument with my brother about China, um, and the extension of the argument is one time I was talking to my brother and he's like, yeah, Chinese is a communist country. And I'm like, well, it's not really a Chinese. It's not, really, you know, he's telling that, you know, China is a communist country. And I'm like, well, I wouldn't really classify it as a true communist country, obviously, because it doesn't necessarily fit the same metrics of um, Karl Marx with the bourgeoisie class system, etc. I indicated it was more of a hybrid type economy. So hybrid being, you know, um, they still have undertones or use aspects of capitalism, but things are still state run. So it's not truly communist. And he continued to argue with me, whatever. But the point I got to is that, you know, there's a terminology for it and it's actually called state capitalism. And this is an an economic system which the state undertakes business in commercial economic activities where the means of products are nationalized and the state-owned enterprises, including the processes of capital um, accumulation, centralization, and management of wages. So I think that's probably the best termination terminology for how to really articulate China as a government is the fact that it is state capitalism. You know, you look all the way back to... Deng, Deng Xiaoping and how, you know, he essentially wanted people to be rich in his famous quote was, let's all be rich. And he ushered in kind of this new state, state capitalism within China. And we've seen it really taken off within the last 30 years, you know, around at the beginning of the 80s. It, uh, China had the same GDP as some of the poorest African nations. As a result of this jump, the economy has jumped and the state involvement has helped it. You know, that's just the reality of the situation. And, you know, we go back to the deal when I talked about it before with Nixon and Kissinger, whenever they went to China to go see Mao to talk about the Vietnam War. And this also kind of brokered in the new era of cheap labor. So everything being made within China for the last how many ever years, um, you know, and really what that takes. And then we kind of spiraled into another conversation which is really about the One Belt, One Road initiative. And the reason why this is relevant is the One Belt, One Road initiative coincides with when China also had the Silk Road. So during the time of the Silk Road, it was actually China's highest moment. You know, in a lot of ways, you could think of the Silk Road trading route, um, you know, as this very global, you know, kind of very large route that went through China, through the stands, through Europe, through Africa, and circled back through, silk being traded, 
you know, and what's really interesting about the silk trade as a result of Islam being in China is because of the Silk Road. Um, Islam came to China 18 years after Muhammad died because, you know, Muhammad was a merchant. So a lot of different cultural nuances that resonates with with the Silk Road that still extends now, you know, kind of put in the footprint. Well, as we kind of move into, move, China moves into a different economic state, the majority of their economics are built on industry. So building, building, building. And the more they can build, the more drives the economy. So in a lot of ways, that's why you kind of have these ghost cities where, you know, they're built and then they're blown up and then sometimes rebuilt because, you know, they need to make sure people are working. You know, and this famous quote about Xi Jinping is one of the things that keeps him up at night is the fact that he must keep a billion people employed. So, you know, China does have a one party system. There's multiple communist members. And, you know, if you look at it now, I would say it is more of a state capitalist type kind of society. I think that's a really good terminology to categorize it. And this state capitalism is really starting to push into the One Belt, One Road initiative. Now, why is this relevant? Well, if you can look at certain patterns in the way Xi Jinping has talked and interact, you can start to develop that they want to bring back the time of the Silk Road and initiate and, and coin, it, uh, coin it as the One Belt, One Road. They want to implement trade. They want to build partnerships. They want to build relations. And that's why they're doubling down and investing on things like the Gwadar port um, close to, you know, within Pakistan and Iran um, area. You know, they're very close at that little border. And what happened is China actually built a road from Pakistan, from Xinjiang, all the way to the Gwadar port to help with trade. So these things are kind of starting to pick up. And whenever the United States normalized relations with Iran back in the Obama administration, the next day Xi Jinping was on a plane to Iran kind of to re-signify this Persian China relation whenever the silk trade was at its highest and how, you know, the importance of economics was really stimulated at that time from those relations. You know, it's almost like they want to take a playbook from the old China to build it onto the new China. And the new China will have a lot of global trade. For example, too, a lot of things that China does is no interest loans. Now, this goes all the way back to Mao Zedong whenever they helped build the the railroad system within, I think, Siberia or Zambia. I think it was Zambia. And what they did is they built a railroad system. They had a non-interest loan. And so you could pay it. And if you couldn't pay it, then China might be able to get land. They might be able to have things like that. And that's really what they've been doing across Africa and South America, they did a non-interest loan in Ecuador, and if Ecuador couldn't play it, then they would take control over the, um, I'm drawing a blank right now for the islands in Ecuador, um, they are the Galapagos Islands, boom. So if you think about it, you know, they, they, they really initiated these very subtle ways of creating business, doing business, and implementing trade. Now, if you look at kind of what's going on right now with the melting of the Arctic, there's a potential opportunity to to opening up new shipping lanes. So the Suez Canal is the number one shipping lane. And, there, you know, so if Russia wants to ship anything to China, they have to go through the Suez Canal. If the shipping lanes open at the top, you know, if you say you wanted to ship something in China or across the world, it might take 
144 days, depending on weather, you know, things like that. But if you can go on the top, it's also going to open up shipping to about 44 days and kind of change the way things are shipped. So the reason why it's really interesting what's going to happen with the One Belt, One Road initiative is how is China going to create it? I mean, they've been creating it now and they're trying to build it. But the, also the intention is to make sure that they have Chinese workers working in other countries, doing other things. You know, if you look at India, for an example, like you can't really, you know, both one billion people in each country, but how the economy is built and sustained. You know, India is leaning more towards tech innovation software, you know, and it's like China is still staying in this industrious era where they want to build and create things. You know, that's kind of their map for how they're going to become, you know, stronger than what they are. And I think in a lot of ways, whenever you see what's happening in Africa, you see these non-interest zones, you see what they're buying. It's like the Chinese own the majority of, of they own a lot of farmland, you know, and as it's because it's state owned capitalism, even though individuals own it, there's a part of it that the actually state owns it. So, you know, you look at different things like that and you look at the influence of technology and how we are going to continuously use technology. And China currently has a lot of the monopoly on that. That's going to help the economy. You know, I went over in one podcast, different amount of purchasing in the United States buys more tech from China than like five countries combined. So that's always going to be a deal. But how the One Belt, One Road initiative happens. So China, too, is also investing a lot in the stands, Kazakhstan, um, Al Algistan, Algistan, that's Algeria, Algeria, um, Tajikistan, you know, these countries are trying to be utilized and China's trying to take the opportunity where they can build relations with them to potentially help their economy. That's also why they're investing in Africa, you know, and those things are really helping the outcome for it. So the one belt, one road isn't also like the thing about China that you have to understand is in the United States, we judge things in four-year time periods. And that's really, you know, a president's election cycle. China doesn't judge it in that. They look at time differently. I've talked about this before. You know, the One Belt, One Road isn't something we're going to see in 10 years. It's probably a 35-year plan or a 40-year plan. You know, that's how, they're, that's, how they, that's how they see things because they are a one-party government. You know, they're trying to take the strategic approach to where they're not having to build it today to get impact in order to look at voters, the media and all that. Like when you look at even if you look at the influence of AI, if whoever is going to master AI is really going to really probably control the next however many years. And when you have the ability for autonomous systems to come in and regulate information for what they're going to do, it's really going to create a whole different aspect of of power. And you know, the big argument or the big conversation is, does innovation drive technology better or can state capitalist in itself drive it? Because within the United States, you have people innovating, working together, you know, the, the classic capitalist model where they're trying to get proof of concept, where they can sell it, they can create what they need to create, and they're still following the laws and all that. When you look at China, the proof of concept, proof of concept can be whatever. They'll steal ideas. They don't care. They don't have the same rule of law. An example of this is there was this unique technology for this wind turbine for this small con- small company. And China really wanted to buy it. So they were suiting 
the company and the company had the technology in a safe and a routed server and you there was no way you could hack it. So what they started to do is they started to manipulate and influence the workers and try to identify how they could corrupt them. And they did eventually corrupt them. They got the secret for the wind turbines and how it regulated and they never even bought it from the company. So they went and they did, you know, essentially they did corporate espionage that allowed them to take secrets. And Corporate espionage within China is also very popular. You look at what they've been able to do with the train system. I mean, there was a moment where, you know, when I heard when I was in China, there was a train accident. And kind of what the what the conversation was about is how the train service had a German operating system within the train that the Chinese had never purchased. Okay, so they were able to go in and take secrets. And that's another potential example of how China's economy has been able to jump so quickly. They're willing to do whatever it takes and no one's really holding them accountable the same way. We can offer sanctions, we have purchase power, etc. But, you know, if they do have the ability to take technology and influence it, you know, their, their job is to become number one. And with state capitalism, you just don't know what the outcome is going to be. You know, with the One Belt, One Road initiative, you don't know how it's going to go. You know, you look at what happened with these zero COVID policies and how it was the first time ever that a lot of people rallied together to influence the modern day China since Tiananmen Square. And it worked. So is that really going to change through the narrative about what the people want of China? Because in a lot of ways, what they want really doesn't matter. It's not as important you know, in the China society in the East is about the collective, not about the individual, which we have in the West. So, you know, whenever we kind of break these down, it's really going to be interesting to see what the modern China looks like. You know, Xi Jinping, in a lot of ways, people think is Mao 2.0. And, you know, what he's trying to do with the Chinese nationalism, what he's trying to do with the Chinese identity is to make it, you know, number one And their buying power is to keep going to go. That's really their best diplomatic approach right now is they don't have the Joseph Nye soft power, but what they have is purchasing power. But you can only buy so much. You know, you can only spend so much money before things turn, you know, and in a lot of ways, these environments don't always take kindly to Chinese workers. So that's kind of my two cents on the One Belt, One Road initiative. I hope you enjoyed it. Please stay tuned to tomorrow. We'll be having another episode because we do it every single day. Thank you so much for joining and we'll uh, talk to you tomorrow.